My name is Paul Gilmartin, and I am the host and producer of the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. What inspired you to create the podcast? Uh, in 2010, late 2010, I made the mistake of uh, going off my meds. And after a couple of, I, for the first couple of months, I thought, oh, I didn't need them. I feel great, which can often be the case. And um, became suicidal and didn't know that it was the depression. And once I recognized that that's what it was, I went back on my meds and, of course, immediately felt better. And I thought, you know, I've been under the care of a psychiatrist for a decade. I go to therapy. I go to support groups and I got fooled by it. I thought, imagine somebody out there that doesn't even believe mental illness is a real thing. Um, it would it would be podcasting would be a great medium to make the idea of getting help um, accessible, potentially entertaining, um, and, and story based. Because one of the things I discovered in my support groups was nothing. Nothing could really get through to me like somebody's story. You could give me all the facts, all the statistics, and that doesn't really get absorbed. But when somebody tells me about their personal struggle with addiction or depression or anxiety or childhood trauma, um, that's when it really sunk in. And I felt a part of something bigger than myself rather than feeling hopeless and isolated and broken and weird and different. So I wanted to kind of be a comfort to people who thought they were alone. How has the show helped your own healing process? Oh, my God. It's it's helped so much. It's helped me process a lot of childhood trauma. Um, so the listeners got to see all that kind of uh, awkward, ungraceful, um, which is what a lot of trauma healing looks like. Sometimes I would be ashamed at the way that 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 I was healing. So it's it's helped me feel a more more a part of the community of people struggling mentally and emotionally, whether it was past or whether they're struggling with it right now. Uh, it's brought a sense of meaning and purpose in my life. It was not a hard decision to walk away from. Um, being a touring stand-up and being a TV host. And it's not like people were knocking my door down, you know, offering me stuff. It just kind of, um, I felt a passion for the podcast. In the first couple of years, I was not able to support myself doing it. And then started getting advertisers. And um, it's it's interesting how the universe sometimes, when we do something that is authentic to ourselves, uh, for ourselves, even if it's kind of scary and there's a lot of unknowns, sometimes the universe has a way of meeting us halfway. And that's what I found to be the, the case. And I learned that in support groups. And being on TV and working in the industry, how was it to talk about mental illness? And was there still a stigma there? Not, not in show business. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's can almost be a badge of honor among creative people um, because, you know, there's that kind of stereotype of the torture genius. So it, it makes it a lot less 
Um, and, and I'll, you know what, I'll just speak for myself because I'm sure there are people in the entertainment industry or the creative arts who do feel shame about having depression or addiction. Now, childhood trauma, I think, is is different, especially sexual trauma and especially incest. Um, that's still something that when I talk about it, I get a little anxious um, because something that's really common with a lot of survivors is questioning their story, questioning the vid- validity of it, worrying that they're over-exaggerating or you know, doing it for attention and all the other mean stuff uh, our brain tells us. So that part was difficult. But talking about depression and anxiety uh, and addiction, no, that was that was not hard. If anything, uh, I talked too much about it in the first couple of years, cutting guests off because I wanted to feel seen. Um so I was doing the podcast for other people, but also for myself, because um, I guess I I wanted to be that person I was doing the podcast for, which is to feel less alone, to deepen the, the kind of the sense of belonging. And I've learned so much from doing the podcast, um, not only from the people I interview, but from the uh, portion of the podcast where I read uh, anonymous surveys that that people fill out because they go really, really deep in those things. They share stuff they don't even share with their therapist or their support groups. And I know that the listeners get a lot out of that because nothing will drag us down like our secrets. With the podcast, you bring a lot of humor into it. How is uh, humor a good uh, tool to work with your mental illness? I, th- I think it's really necessary. For me, it has been because life isn't all darkness. And it's right. hard when you're in the darkness and you're isolated and you feel alone. But once I started getting into support groups, I started laughing and crying harder than I do it most of my favorite movies and i found that really really cathartic uh because it's not all darkness it doesn't have to be all darkness and sometimes laughing about the darkness not to ignore it and that's a big big difference is not in place of vulnerability but in addition to the vulnerability um you know in a support group meeting somebody will share something that's Really, and and this is one of the the things that led to us creating the survey called Awfulsome, which is something that was awful at the time, but is has some component of awesomeness to it uh, after some time has passed. And I realized a lot of those, those moments um, really made support group meetings so healing, connective, entertaining the laughter about those things, not because they're still going on necessarily, but because we got through them and we can see, um, I don't know, this, this silver lining. Sometimes it's the silver lining is something that seemed awful at the time that was necessary for something great to happen later. Um, and sometimes it's just something that was so, just 
you know, the feeling like the universe is unloading on you and you look back and you're like, I probably took that a little too personally and boy, did I make it worse by my reaction, but I can kind of laugh now because now I am moving forward and I'm not stuck in that same place. It's really hard when you are stuck to laugh about it. But when you get some forward momentum and you start to develop tools to cope with your feelings and the world around you, it's much, much easier to laugh. Like you said earlier about just hearing the story is much better than if there's tips or anything like that. And I agree completely because when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder too, I didn't know where to find those stories. So yeah. I looked all over. There is a Wikipedia of famous people with bipolar disorder. That's all I could find. But now hearing the stories and like you bring these stories out, how does it feel for you that you are getting more people into the conversation? Oh, it feels amazing. It's so life affirming. Uh, you know, I mentioned the, the, you know, the words meaning and purpose. And that has brought me the peace in my life that I was chasing by trying to be impressive, you know, whether personally or professionally. And I, I had an epiphany of, you know, kind of early in my support group experience that the, no wonder you're lonely if you're constantly trying to distance yourself from people by being impressive. Oh, I found the thing that was so connective was finding the commonalities between myself and other people and that there was comfort in being one of many. And one of the things that our ego tells us is we're better than other people or worse than other people. And it's just a way of obsessing about ourselves. And I think we do that when we're in survival mode. But <clears throat> what I, <clears throat> excuse me, what I discovered was the shared struggle is the thing that connects us, our lowest moments, um, the stuff we are afraid to say out loud. Those are the things. When, I, when I'm in a support group meeting and, you know, for instance, I see somebody who has spent a third of their life in prison, who's done awful, awful things in their life and has decided to leave their gang, to leave that life behind you know and they got the face tattoos and the whole thing and they're so intimidating looking and you see them break down and cry and you realize that there is a scared little boy inside them just like there is in me you know and they'll share about being terrified in prison and having to put a front on and that is having a front row seat for that is better than any TV show I've done, any stand-up gig I've had, it really feels, I don't know about you, but that that 60 minutes clock that ticks in my head telling me I'm three steps behind the universe and I'm not doing enough, that just goes silent in those moments. And I know I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And that is an amazing feeling. It's the, it's the cheapest muscle relaxer I've ever had you don't need a prescription and there's no side effects and there's no addiction what are some of the things that motivate you expressing myself creatively i play guitar and a lot of it is just for myself you know maybe i'll share it with my girlfriend sometimes i'll i'll put it 
underneath some surveys is a music bed uh, on the podcast. That's a really, um, it's something I really enjoy because I find that there are certain things that I don't know how to put words to, but creating music is like a way of, of getting it out. Um, building furniture is another thing where I um, am able to express a part of myself. I find it to be uh, such a really fun combination of both sides of my brain because there's kind of an analytic scientific part of your brain that's necessary to design something for it to be structurally sound to use the right joints and then there's a creative part of yourself that imagines what something might look like and then the the task of going about and how do i create that what wood do i use you know stuff like that um those are those are ways of expressing myself and, and playing hockey um I, I, no matter how depressed I ever get, I'm always excited to go play hockey. Sometimes it's a little scary when I'm depressed to leave my house, not because of any specific fear, just because being home alone feels so oddly comforting. But um, I think the things that, that motivate me uh, are things that are, that relieve my my struggles but there's a part of my brain that and i think a lot of people experience this that tells me ah, don't go out the front door you don't need to go to that meeting you don't need to pick up the phone and share what's going on with you you can figure this out by yourself and one of the great thing about support groups is you see enough people ruin their lives by stop doing what's working stopping doing what's working you know going to the meetings sharing about their feelings being of service uh that i intellectually know it is not healthy for me to isolate and bury my feelings and so the fear of ruining my life giving up all the good things i have in it because if i don't keep putting the work in, keep connecting to people, there's a good chance I could start using drugs and alcohol again and and die. You know, there's some really dangerous drugs out there. And the addictive part of my brain is like, ooh, fentanyl looks looks kind of interesting. I mean, that must be a really good feeling if you look at the lengths people go to to use it. And I intellectually understand, no, it's a it's a shit show. Yeah, it's Russian roulette. But that's the nature of addiction as it romanticizes um, the oblivion of avoiding our feelings, no matter what it is, whether it's video games. I had to give up video games because it was affecting my productivity and I was using it to avoid my feelings. Video games in and of themselves are not bad, but having an addictive personality, I was struggling to play it moderately and I could feel that. I was not um, operating at the at the level that I, I was not reaching my potential as a person, both professionally and, and personally. Um, so it's never over. The battle is never over. Um, 
I can't control how the universe will react to the actions that I put in, you know, in terms of my recovery and maintaining my mental health. But the odds are sure better that my life is going to work out if I keep doing what's working. But I'm always battling that part of my brain that tells me it's time to coast, stay home, watch Netflix for eight hours. When you hear other stories uh, that people are in similar situations, does that make you feel like you're not alone? Oh, my God. that That's an understatement. I, I almost can't put it into words. It's such a deep connection. And uh, because it is a... Even though <clears throat> we need to surrender to the reality that, you know, we have a mental illness that is not going to go away but could be managed and same with addiction um it the comfort of looking around a room and knowing that there are so many people who get you get you on a level that somebody who doesn't battle those things never really can to that extent they can have empathy for you but when you know that you're surrounded by people who have been in that place where you promised yourself you weren't going to drink or do drugs that day and the sun goes down and there you are drunk and high and sad and filled with shame and regret because you just can't stop. It's such a pitiful, hopeless place to be. And it's, it's a brotherhood that is unlike any other. You know, I bond with my friends that I play hockey with. We have that shared love of it. But the support groups go so much deeper, and especially um, the childhood trauma one, because that can feel so isolating and shameful. Um, you know, I don't feel the shame around, you know, having drank alcoholically and done drugs addictively, but the childhood trauma is so confusing. Um, it's sometimes harder to share the, you know, the quote unquote ugliness of, of that. With uh, the podcast, uh, I saw you had uh, Mark Marin on recently. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever think it would become what it is today? Not when I started it. Uh, in fact, I looked back through one of my journals and it was when I was thinking of starting a podcast and I had written down, I think, I think, I wonder if people will relate to this and listen to this. Um I think it I think I would enjoy doing it, but I don't know what the reaction will be. Uh, and so I came at it from a way that I think was kind of innocent, which was beneficial because I didn't set out to make money doing it. And so the nature of the podcast, the vibe of it was uh, had kind of an altruistic, 
thing to it. And I think people related because it didn't feel like somebody was trying to make money from something. And, and even if somebody doesn't state what their intent is with a creative project, you can feel sometimes what their intent is. You know, if it feels manipulative or um, grandiose. And not that I've never done episodes where that is the case. Um, it, it surprised me. And it still surprises me. The beautiful emails and messages I get from people who tell me their lives have been deeply affected by the podcast. It's what I hoped for when I set out and, and created it. Um, and so it's an, it's an amazing feeling. It's been very, very uh, surprising. And I think one of the most surprising things was I was really worried that talking about mental illness as somebody who doesn't have a degree, who isn't a therapist, um, that mental health professionals were going to be like, who does this guy think he is? He is a danger to the general public talking about this. And I have never gotten a shaming email from a mental health professional, quite the opposite. They, they, I get emails from them saying that they get so much out of it that they, um, not that I know more than them, but the vulnerability of it, um, the, uh, they recommend it to their clients. I mean, I can't even explain what a relief that was and is, um, it feels so uh, validating and um i try to always be aware of the fact that my knowledge around things um is limited and i say at the beginning of every episode this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling i'm not a therapist you know i like to think of myself as the the hand holding someone else's hand in the waiting room for the psychiatrist's office, uh, you know, the feeling of, I don't know, being a failure when you first start going to see a therapist or psychiatrist and you're sitting in their office and nobody's making eye contact. I always just found that so kind of sad. And I thought the podcast could kind of be a way of helping, helping people feel comfort um, when they're in that, that headspace of like, oh my God, how has my life come down to this? Um, so yeah, it, um, I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> As my dad used to say, my brain went to screensaver. <laughs> uh, I just asked about, uh, the success of the show. And yes, yes. And, um, <laughs> You know, the quotes in the media making best of lists, you know, Esquire, New York Times. Uh, I never even imagined that that major publications would be listening to my podcast, let alone championing it and putting it, you know, on their list of favorite uh, health podcasts. It's um, a lot of it has been a a surprise. 